good morning. Welcome to Lexington Baptist Church. Again, we are glad that you can be here with us. We have here in the front, as we do every now and then, we have some books that we're giving away. If you did not get the book Gentle and Lowly, there are some back by a little offering box back there. Grab one of those. There's a book up here in the front called Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. So I think we have like 15, 20 copies down here. If you want to read one, so not take it home and, and use it for your campfire, but if you want to read one, you come down here and just grab one and just grab it and take it. If you'll read it in the next month or two, I encourage you, pass it on or bring it back. So if you bring it back, we'll put it in the church library, and then maybe we can pass them out again one time. So if we have 10 come back, we can next time we'll pass 10 back out. If there's somebody like, you know what? I know somebody that would ne- needs this book or would love this book. Pass it on. So we got to encourage you, grab one of these books at the end. Have you ever heard the phrase or used the phrase, that was money well spent? Have you ever used the phrase, that was a waste of money? Those are two different phrases. Both have this idea that we want what we spend our money on to be worthwhile. So every now and then you hear family vacations where mom and dad sink their inheritance, dad sold his kidney on the black market, everybody's unhappy the entire trip. Well, that was a waste of money. Or sometimes the simplest thing, taking your kid out for an ice cream cone and seeing their expression, you're like, that was money well spent. It's amazing that we want this sense of value out of what we give our money to. Um, my dad and I used to love watching the Antiques Roadshow, and I saw a video recently of the Antiques Roadshow. I, I don't know why we loved it. It's just a guilty pleasure. We'd watch it, and we'd try to debate before this came up how much this item was going to be worth. We're usually off by a couple numbers, usually a couple zeros. $10 million. It's 15 It's $15. It's just a bottle cap. It's not worth anything. But I just saw a, a, a vet. They had Veterans Day. I had a vet that came on that had a, a Rolex watch that he bought back in the 70s while he was um, deployed. I don't know if you've seen it. Anybody see that one? And yeah, it was crazy. And the guy bought this watch, like $375 that he spent, was going to take it diving, realized I probably shouldn't take a Rolex diving. And so there's wisdom there. Um, maybe not the best watch you want to use. Go find a battery-operated Seiko and let it die on your way down. But he buys this watch, realizes it's too expensive, puts it in a safety deposit box, decides he's going to bring it out. Let's bring it to Antiques Roadshow and see what it's worth. And they guy, you know, gives the spiel. It's this and this, and it has this paper, and, and it's over here. And you see over here it's this and that. And he's pointing things with a stick, and it makes it look more expensive. And he says at the end, you know, you know what this is worth? And his last number that he gives the guy is uh, around $700,000. While he's talking numbers, he didn't get to the 700000 number yet. The vet literally just buckles. His knee buckles and he falls over on the ground when he's talking money. Once he gets above a half million, that was money well spent. That was money well spent. Well, why are you talking about Antiques Roadshow, Pastor? Why are you talking about this? Because the church does collect money. Is it well spent? Is this worth your time 
and money. So if you go back to 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15, we realize that the whole theme of this book is that we may know how we ought to behave, how we ought to live, how we ought to act within the household of God. Well, if we give money, shouldn't we expect something in return? And if we do get something in return, is it worth it? Is it worthwhile? And we're going to see this. Paul's going to answer that there is something very worthwhile when it comes to our money being well spent beyond the advantage of what it may do. So understand that we give money, it goes to missions, and you realize, well, I may never see that $700,000 price tag here on earth, but when we get to heaven to see what, by God's grace, our funds have been able to do, our knees may buckle. What? It led to this missionary doing this, and then that person, that these people were in this Money well spent. So turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll read verse 17 and go through verse 25. If you were here two weeks ago, I told you we're just going to keep going through the next passage, next passage, which obviously I lied to you because last week was communion, and so I forgot about that. My apologies. Every now and then we do take a breather for things like communion. We'll have Christmas messages coming up. But for the most part, we try to stay at the very next paragraph. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may rest, so that, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality, do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. The sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Today you will see the church should compensate their pastor, elder, shepherd, hold them accountable, and carefully point them so first we'll see pastors should be compensated let me give a disclaimer here i am a pastor and i am compensated so this is not my favorite message in first timothy to be speaking on so next week we're going to have you come up and explain why your company should continue to give you money and why you're worth your time okay so if you understand that you understand the little pickle i'm in right now now why are we going through this it just happens to be the next paragraph so next time we go through 1 Timothy, I elect one of you to come speak on this, and I will pick somebody that likes me. 1 Timothy 5, 17, pastors should be compensated. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox, that's a favorable illustration for pastors, as it treads out the grain, or perhaps the farmer, right? The laborer deserves his wages. There's a number of things we need to investigate in this verse. First, let's look at that first phrase. It says, let the elders. Now help me, for our English grammarians out there, is this singular or plural? It's plural. Why is that important to point out? Because back when we were going through chapter 3, we talked about how there are pastors, plural. It's not the pastor of the church. It's pastors of the church. 
It's not meant and it's never meant to be one. Ever. Well, how do we know that? Because of what Scripture tells us. Because of what we see in Scripture. The word pastor, so before we get into this, the word pastor, elder, overseer, for those of you who don't recall from First Timothy chapter 3, we went through this. Pastor, overseer, and elder are all the same office. We see this in First Peter 5, the first five verses, where all three words are used to describe the single office of the pastor. Pastor, overseer, shepherd. Each three of those terms are used synonymously throughout Scripture. So if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, he uses a different word here than he uses here in chapter 5. He used the word overseer, and here he's going to use presbyter, elder. So all three, the same. So read 1 Peter 5 if you have questions on that. Now, are we sure it needs to be plural, and why are we making a big deal about this? Because when we started 1 Timothy, I asked the question, what is our guide for faith and practice. What is our guide for faith and practice? Is it the word of God? Is it our constitution? Or is it our experience? Well, the church I grew up in had, no one cares. I hope. Well, our constitution, constitution says, no one cares, I hope. The word of God says, Amen. Friends, Christians, mothers, sisters, this has to be our sole guide for faith and practice. Now, there are things it does not talk about. Then we can deliberate on what color should the wall be in the nursery. We can discuss that. Should there be just one pastor, a pastor at the church? We can teach what the Bible says. It may not be your experience. It may not be what our Constitution says, and it's not. But what does it say? It says pastors. So again, we went through this in Acts 14. I won't spend a ton of time on this, but Acts 14, 23, if you want to look this up, look through the life of Paul and how he lived. So Acts 14, 23, when Paul and Barnabas were sent on their mission trip, said when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, plural, in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed unto the Lord in whom they believed. In Acts 15, you'll see the word elders, plural, used five times. Acts 20, 17, Paul calls a meeting with the leadership in Ephesus. He calls the elders of the church to come to him. The very church Timothy is in, the church of Ephesus, Paul calls the elders, plural, of the church in Acts 20, 17 to come to him. If you flip back in 1 Timothy 4 and look at verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders, plural, laid their hands on you. We go to Titus, which we'll get to next year, Lord willing. Paul telling Titus to appoint elders in every town. Everywhere you see in Scripture, it's elders, plural, that should be running and operating the church. Why is that? There's a number of reasons. One, you could think of, going back to Proverbs, there is safety, there's a multitude. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. You don't just want one sinner running the show. You want multiples because we are sinners. Recognize that we're going to need each other, and we're going to need people pointing out, hey, whoa, 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 you're off track. Oh, am I? Yeah, I didn't realize that. Well, it's because I'm a sinner. So we need each other. 
That's a reason why. But I'm sure there's a better way. Look at me. There's got to be a better way to explain this to everybody without taking, you know, a 10-week series going through this. There may be a better way. The best way I can think to do it is ask you to look down at your Bible and read the word for yourself and then ask, is this what we are doing? Is this, friend, enough for you? So read through it. If you got a better argument for it, you're up next week. But the best thing I can do is just say, it, it's here. Pastor Mike, is that what you grew up with? Nope. It's not my experience. Have you been in a church that's had it? Yep. Was that church perfect? Absolutely not. Why not? Because I was there. It ceases to be perfect once a, a human being enters. doesn't mean all of a sudden we're more righteous. This means by God's grace we're trying to more fully align with the word. By doing so, does that mean 8,000 people will soon get saved and offerings going to double because now we've, no. This means by God's grace, we see we're trying to stay on track. Adjust course, stay north. That's all we're trying to do. So again, just encourage you as we're thinking through this, there are multiple elders, many elders, pastors. We see this in verse 17, 8, that there are two tasks that the pastor elders should do well. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there are two tasks, rule, oversee, supervise, right? That's the task. And then teaching and preaching. There are two tasks. There's a sense of ruling or oversight that pastors are supposed to have over the church. And as we saw in chapter 3, one of the distinguishing differences between a pastor, elder, and a deacon is that they are apt to teach. They can teach the word. They do these things, and if they do these things well, they should be compensated by the assembly. We see this in verse 17. Paul says, let them be considered worthy of double honor. What does that mean, double honor? We've seen the word honor used in 1 Timothy before regarding finances, when we were talking about widows, what does the word double honor mean? One author said of this, elders who serve the greater commitment, serve with greater commitment, excellence, and effort should have greater acknowledgement from their congregations. Paul will back this up by quoting two different verses. Look at verse 18. And, verse, and he's going to quote from two different texts, one from Deuteronomy and one from Luke. And it's very important, and you may not recognize this yet, it's very important that he does this. Not just for the argument, and we'll get to this at the very end when we look at Luke. But the first text Paul quoted is Deuteronomy 25, 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Paul used this in 1 Corinthians 9. If you were here in our study of 1 Corinthians, we went through this, that the workman is worthy of his hire, that the church should be taking care of the one teaching and preaching. Taking care of those, sorry, teaching and preaching. He also uses Luke 10, 7, which little Evelyn read for us today. Luke 10, Jesus was sending out his disciples in groups of two and tells them, do not take any money with you because those that receive your teaching will compensate you. They'll take care of you. Why would somebody compensate the one teaching them the word? Jesus says in Luke 10, because a laborer deserves his wages. Because in the household of God here in our assembly, one of, the, one of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons we give is that because when we give, it means that we are being fed the Word of God. Christians are to see this as money well spent. 
And so when you think of, well, why do I give? Have you ever heard of people in a church that decide, I'm not going to give anymore? And what's the reason they didn't give? Have you, anybody in here heard some crazy cornball reasons why people wouldn't give? From the music to the carpet to the pews or chairs. Oh, I'm not going to give anymore because they did that. But that's not why you give. Are you being fed the word of God? The answer is yes, then you give. Friend, look at me and listen very carefully. If you are not being fed the word of God here, leave. Leave. For your own soul's sake. If we cease to teach the word of God, then we can't make you eat. We can't make you grow. But if from the pulpit, the word of God ceases to be taught, and you have not kicked me out, which you should do. But if I or any other refuses to teach the word of God, go somewhere else that your soul may be nourished. But a reason, not the only reason, that we give is because we realize this is money well spent because my soul is being fed. So we give in that way. This command to compensate those ruling uh, the congregation and teaching congregation is couched between two different ideas. First, in chapter 3, pastors are not to be lovers of money. So back a little bit. Pastors should not love money. They are still to be paid money. But we'll see next, they're also to be held accountable. They are to be held accountable. Not just with money, but in every aspect of their life. Look at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except in evidence of two or three witnesses. Some of you here have had the unfortunate privilege of being in a church where the pastor or elder has to, has to be brought front of the congregation and they have to remove that pastor or elder because of sin. It is not fun. So to have to be there as I've been there to experience that, it's awful. Bringing a charge, though, against a pastor or elder has to be done carefully, not on a whim. It's not a he said, she said moment. There has to be two to three witnesses. And again, we're not just talking about disagreements. Like, you know, he said they were going to do this, and, and, and we're not doing that. All right, well, we'll paint the, ball, paint the wall blue then, and everyone can calm down. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about budgetary issues. They allotted X amount of number to this line item, and we shouldn't have. No, we're talking about sin. If there's a sin that needs to be brought up, then with two or three witnesses, it should be. Because they are to be held accountable. What if a pastor, though, that does err? Because we will err. I will err. Even our last deacons meeting had asked the brothers to forgive me. Because I'm reading through this book, being gentle and lowly, hearing about the heart of Christ and going, I'm not gentle and lowly. Brothers, forgive me. Church, if, I, if I've been that to you, if I've not been gentle and lowly and I've come across in a caustic way, forgive me. Because I will sin. Just like you do. But there's a sense of persisting in sin, continuing 
and there's no repentance, what do we do? Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of a couple, the two or three? No, no, in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. The rest of the pastors, the other elders, would stand in fear. No pastor elder wants to be here, standing for the congregation, being confronted for continued sin that they will not repent of. Unfortunately, it happens. But if one does persist in sin, I'm to be rebuked. The pastor's supposed to be rebuked in front of the whole church. Why? Is this just to embarrass them? No. It's that the rest, the other pastors, elders, may stand in fear. As I've seen personally, when this happened in my own life, when we saw a pastor at our church have to go through this, there was a healthy review in my own life. Sweet mercy. Lord, help me. I don't want to be here. And so I look at people like my dad and other godly men that have gone before and realize they can be faithful to the end. God, help me get there. I want to get there. There's this problem. I'm, I'm racked in this little shell called sin, the sin nature. And I want to get there, but victory today doesn't guarantee victory tomorrow. Christians, you would pray for me, for other pastors here, that we would just simply be faithful today, by God's grace. God, we'd be faithful today. And may 30 years from now, 50 years from now, that they just said, this just was faithful. Nothing spe- spectacular other than just was simply faithful. Amen. And amen. Lord, help me get to that day. But the church should compensate Their pastors, the church should hold them accountable. And lastly, the church should carefully appoint them. Pastors should be carefully appointed, verse 21, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Early in 519, Paul tells them not to allow a charge except through two or three witnesses. He says, I'm going to call in a couple witnesses on you, Timothy. The witnesses I'm calling in are the Father, the Son, and all the angels. All the angels in heaven, the elect angels, we're going to call in and we're going to be witnesses. They're witnessing my commands to you. You have to keep these commands, eight of them, in this text. On a side note here, if you're not a Christian, let me point out, look at verse 21, because there's a major tenet of the Christian faith in this text, namely that Jesus is alive in the presence of Christ Jesus. He is alive. He's in heaven right now. Yes, he died, but he rose from the dead and is still alive. And if Jesus isn't alive today, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are of all men most miserable. You are, look at me, if Jesus, if you believe Jesus is dead, go home. You're wasting your time. What are we trying to do? Just do better? If Jesus isn't alive, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But he is alive. He did come. He did die. He did rise. He did ascend on high, and he still lives today. And all God's people said, amen. He makes a way. He's the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except through him, and you do that because he's alive. He is alive. Thus, we have hope. Paul says, in front of, you're very, very alive, very present Savior. 
do these things. And back to appointing elders, as Timothy appoints elders, he's to do so with a blank slate. No bias, no partiality. If we appoint other pastors, elders here, we're not to do so with just the ones we like best. It's never supposed to be a popularity contest. The one who has the most toys wins. Who meets the qualifications? No bias. I know, but I'm kind of letting that one slide, but, you know, everything else I'm pretty good at. No, brother, you need to change. And you cannot be until you do. There needs to be a pattern of faithfulness in your life. Verse 22, we continue. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Timothy, don't rush into appointing elders or pastors. If we're going to compensate pastors... If you want to avoid bringing them in front of the church to rebuke them, then we have to be careful in who we appoint. Also note that Paul does expect, so look at this, you'll see this is, it's inferred. He does expect Timothy to lay on hands and to continue to appoint elders and pastors in his church. Don't be hasty doing it, but he's assuming he will. In 1 Timothy 2, 2, Paul will tell Timothy to entrust what he's been given to faithful men who another teach others also. Church, do we want to be a church that is duplicating? Do we want to be a church that is disciple-making? Should we not then also be a church that continues to appoint and lay hands on godly men wanting to shepherd this congregation? Remember when we went through 1 Timothy 3 and I asked you, is, are you telling me, you look at the qualifications of, of pastor in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, that myself and Ethan were the only two in this congregation that meet those qualifications? Do you truly believe we're the only two? If you do, you need to meet a few more people. What a gift. We've seen the gift last, two weeks ago of godly women. But what a gift also, as we saw in 1 Timothy 3, of godly men. And to raise them up and say, we see in you what Scripture says ought to be there. And the brother says, I want to serve. I want to be used of God. And let's lay hands and appoint, just like we did for Ethan in our ordination. And appoint them. Shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock blessing it would be to see duplication, disciple making happen, people stepping up and taking that next step. Perhaps they're here ready to go, we just aren't giving them the option because we don't currently have a space for where you put somebody who is, meets these qualifications but isn't paid. What do we do with that? The same thing we do with deacons. They're not paid either. And no, you're not going to be paid. So deacons, you can just rest right now. Nobody's paying you anything. No, but you see, those that are, in 1 Timothy 5, those are, their main goal is that teaching, preaching, ruling well, but also teaching, preaching, that's double honor. But you will have those that maybe they just realize, I can shepherd, I can teach in Sunday school, but maybe this won't be my main goal. This will not be my main spot. And I can serve here on a volunteer basis. But I meet all the qualifications. I have the heart of a shepherd. I am fulfilling these qualifications. And plug them in. Let's roll. And see a duplication happen. 
then what should they do? Well, 1 Timothy 2, 2, they should be entrusting this to other men also. Ladies, don't worry. We'll get to first, we'll get to Titus, where Titus will tell the ladies to be teaching other ladies too. We'll get there. There should be this duplication process of us raising up the next generation and helping people in our own assembly take the next step to become what God would have them be. This is simply one of those ways that we could do so, to be a duplicating, disciple-making church. Now, Paul's going to take a quick break here because he's, gonna, he's talking about pastors being rebuked and not hastily laying on hands. And he's going to focus on Timothy for the next verse and a half. He says at the end of verse 23, nor take part in the sins of others, Timothy. Keep yourself pure. If you see other elders, pastors are sinning, don't cave in and join them. Be difference maker. Keep yourself pure. Then he gets to Timothy's freedom here. He's going to get to Timothy's freedom. Paul tells Timothy, verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Back in chapter 3, Paul gives the qualifications of pastor elder, and he says that pastor elder should not be a drunkard. He says that deacons, they should not be given to much wine. And here he tells Timothy, but you should drink wine. In fact, two of the eight commands he gives to Timothy are here. Drink wine and use the wine. So back when I was in chapter 3, I, I asked, can pastors drink alcohol? And I said, I'm not going to answer that today. We're going to wait until we get to chapter 5 to answer that. And here we are. Chapter 5. So can pastors drink alcohol? What is our sole guide for faith and practice? What does it say? To use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, I heard of a pastor who used this text and did not think anybody should drink wine. And he talked about how what he meant was that he ought to pour some out and rub it on his stomach. Now, that does that seem weird to you? How do you get there? Well, sometimes when we try to put our standards over top of the Bible, they don't always work. Now, friend, listen, if you know me, um, well, let me get back to that. First, let me give you a couple answers, things you need to know about this. First, you need to understand in context, when Paul says wine, no, he's not speaking of grape juice. He's speaking of wine. But wine in this culture was diluted, and it's diluted for a purpose. So they would drink water, they would add wine to it to kill the dysentery, to keep you from getting disease. you got to understand this. It still was wine, but it was also to help them. Two of these eight commands, as I mentioned, are about drinking alcohol. And if a pastor, or a Christian for that matter, does drink it, then remember the first command, you should never be a drunkard. Paul tells us in Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine. Where's the next sentence? And sometimes we use that to say, well, nobody should ever drink alcohol at all. Like, no, the point is control. Nothing should control you except the Holy Spirit. That includes your smartphone. That includes coffee. So name, name your guilty pleasure. Nothing should control you other than the Holy Spirit. That includes alcohol. So real quick, most of you know that in that me personally, I've mentioned this before, I, have, I don't have a dog in this fight. So why are we talking about it? Because we don't have alcohol in our home. Scratch that, because we may have NyQuil somewhere in our house, and that does have, the good stuff does have alcohol in there, good NyQuil does. It, but we don't. 
Is that because we're holier than you? Yes. No, I'm joking. Absolutely not. No, friend, it's just a standard we have for our home. Our music standard's going to be different than yours. There may be some people in here that should never touch alcohol at all because of what Hebrews tell us could be their easily besetting sin. They see in my family, it's wreaked havoc. I'm better off if I never touch it. Well, God bless you, brother and sister, for taking that stand and realizing this is detrimental to my entire family. I don't want it to be detrimental to me. So, so we don't have it, so why talk about it? Because it's in the text. And I have to repeat this over and over again. Because I grew up, I grew up in a place in time where standards, the outside shell, equaled holiness. That wasn't what my dad pushed on my home, but that was the world in which we lived in. That was what was taught at the college I went to, and the Christian school I went to. And so you'd have these teenagers and college kids realize later on that mom and dad said on this, you can't because the Bible says you never can drink alcohol. Nobody can ever have it. And then they go and read their Bible and realize, well, you can. Now what gets brought into confusion? What gets brought into doubt? Everything you said about who Jesus is. And some that started, they're off, we're out of here. I'm out of church altogether. Because of what they said. They said, women can't wear pants. They said, you can't do this. Men can't have long hair. You can't get a tattoo. You can't wear, you can't drink alcohol. And all of a sudden they realize, but I can. And so they leave. Because if you're not trustworthy on A, perhaps you're not trustworthy on B. So I beg you, church, listen, this is not something we need to divide over. I'm not preaching on this so I can go to Kroger and go get me a 12-pack of whatever they sell. This is not what this is about. What this is about is me fighting for not only the integrity of the word, but the integrity of our children. That when they hear mom and dad, you say, we're not going to do this. Like our own kids will hear. Well, why not? We don't think it's best. Now, how many kids love to hear that? Zero. But at least we're not going against the word of God. There are plenty of things that you won't let your kid do because it's not best. Don't run in the road. Don't touch a hot stove. Plenty of things. Don't date that knucklehead. And they may not like it, and that's okay. When they're parents, they'll do it all the right way, right? But I'm fighting for that generation and realizing from the church, from the pulpit, listen, we can, di- we can say that's not best for us and for our home. Brother and sister, if you choose differently, there's grace, but there's also responsibility. If you do bring it in your home, then you need to understand it should never control you. Just like your smartphone, just like coffee, just like name, name it, Netflix, Hulu. It shouldn't control you. Your work, it shouldn't control you. The Holy Spirit should. So there's responsibility. So For those of you that want to take this in a medicinal way, even though alcohol was used, again, there it was just a way to negate the bad water they were drinking. That want to talk about medicinal use, you do have to ask then, are there medicines that we should or should not take? 
This comes into play in the last few years where they realize that marijuana is good for those that have Parkinson's disease. And I know people that have Parkinson's disease that won't take marijuana because they realize it's a drug. And, and I'm not supposed to take drugs. I'm not supposed to have drugs. So they won't take it. So should they or could they? It is their personal choice. Paul says you have the freedom to. It just cannot control you. So if a brother or sister here chooses, again, <laughs> we're not, not going to the doctor anytime soon and trying to get a prescription for this. Just we have to be honest with the text. If it can help somebody, we take opioids. If you have pain, just get out of surgery. To tell a brother that he can't take marijuana if it's going to help him with his Parkinson's, going, well, that doesn't make sense at all. Is there fear that it might control him? Absolutely should be your fear for any, any medicine you take. But stepping back and going, this is between them and the Lord. If it starts controlling them, I don't go after them to point out their sin. I go after them because I love them and I want them to be on the straight and narrow. So it's not whose home is holier. It's making sure what we're teaching is what the Word teaches. Knowing the Lord can work through our children. And He can work through the teaching of the Word in our home to bring good things to bear. So if we can take a step back from that, again, I, I don't like spending a lot of time on that, but it is something, it's personal to me because I've watched so many people in my life, friends that have just gone off, gone off because they heard in the church, A, and they realized that's not in the text at all. In fact, the text says the exact opposite thing. So I want to protect us from doing that, protect us from getting there. But if you look at these last two verses here, Paul says here in chapter 5, these two verses continue the thought from chapter from verse 22. I'm not being quick to lay on hands and appoint on the elder. Paul says in verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear, appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, even those that are not, cannot remain hidden. Because we can't see the heart, Paul tells Timothy, you want to see a person's way of life over time, because eventually it will come out. So before appointing them as a pastor elder, just give space. Do not be hasty in laying hands on them. Wait and see their way of life because if there are hidden things that need to come out, Lord willing, they will come out. Again, the church should compensate their pastors. The church should hold them accountable. The church should carefully appoint them. So what does all this mean for us today? What can we apply to our lives? First off, granted, in verse 21, we talked about this. Paul gives Timothy a challenge in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. We talked about how Jesus is alive. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will stand in his presence. Everyone will. The question is, when you stand in the presence of Christ, what will he say? Jesus tells you what he will say in Matthew 25. He's going to give you one of two phrases. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that he will say to them on that day, when you stand before the Lord of glory, you say one of two things. Depart from me, first one. Depart from me, I never knew you. Or two, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Friend, which will he say to you? Depart from me, I never knew you. 
are come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. If you know him as a Savior, you will say, come. Encourage you today. Give your life to him. As we mentioned earlier, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. The Bible tells us whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Admit, you like I, that we are sinners. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Call on his name. Pray, God, save me. Forgive me. And he will. And then when you stand in his presence, come. Come. Blessed by my Father. Come to the King prepared for you. For all those that are here that claim to be Christian, let me ask you a few questions. First, have you been blessed by the teaching ministry of this church? I'm thankful that as I've been here over the last five years that I've heard from numerous people of the teaching ministry that this church has had for the last 64 years of people being willing to teach the truth of God. Have you been blessed by the teaching ministry of the church? And how can God use your resources to keep the ministry growing and going? We've seen God do some amazing things in this church through the gifts of God's people. Through the debt being paid off, so again, if you're new here, you're looking over here, you see these numbers, what does that stand for on that little column? We saw in, you see the numbers on the far side is 74. In 74 days, we saw $924,982.76 get paid off in 74 days. Not something we were looking to do, not something we planned on happening, but God just showed up and did a work and wiped out almost a million dollars in debt, took out almost $75,000 a year in our budget, which now we can start spending more and more and more in missions through whom? Who did God use? You. He used you to do something amazing. Why stop there? What did he get, could he do next? There's more than just debt for this building. I mean, there are places without the Bible. People have never heard. I mean, look up the app Unreached of the Day. So we try to, in our morning, we try to pray for when we're sending off the kiddos to school, we try to pray for that, that Unreached of the Day, the people group. You'll read a million people. Zero Christians. Our friends that are serving Indonesia, they're working with people that have no written language. No written language, there's no Bible. They're trying to learn the language. They're trying to make up a language so they can write it down in the Word of God for these people to be able to read for the first time their language. You have to teach them their own language. What an endeavor. There are missionaries like that all over this world. What could we do? What could, how could God use you? Thankful for the ministries that we've been a part of. The, the church I grew up in, and they had a, instead of, they had zero dollars that was from their budget. Zero dollars from their budget went to missions. Based on Acts 15, that the people collected. So first, you're paying your church. Your tithes and your offerings went to compensate your church building, take care of your essential needs, and for your staff. Everything else 
They said, if you want to give to missions, you've got to give above and beyond your normal tithes and offerings. And they have what's called faith promise giving. Some churches call it grace giving. So people are giving above and beyond their normal tithes. That's what missions were. The church I grew up in, my dad's church, by the time he left, it was over $400,000 a year. People giving above and beyond their tithes because they realize people need the gospel. I can give towards that. Church we left in Richmond where people were there were giving and there was this pattern. I don't know how long it's been on, but for decades of people that when they were passing away, they were giving, they're leaving their money to their church. So they had an account for missionaries. They had missionaries retirement accounts that had over half a million dollars in it. And when a missionary retired, they could take care of their needs. But it started off with people giving. Then missions that was going to, uh, specifically just Brazil, over 100K given through some people going, hey, we're going to start funding missions going to Brazil. So our missionaries in Brazil, we're going to start making this thing. So almost every year, they were going down. Somebody's going down. But people realize we could do more. Christian, what could God do for you? We've seen what he can do already. It's crazy. What's next? What's next for us? How could God use you? He can use your resources to do an amazing work. Second, where does our authority lie for faith and practice? I believe, and I believe our church believes, it has to be the word of God. Amen? Speaking of the word of God, did you see in verse 18 what Paul said? Look back at verse 18. Paul quotes two texts, one from Deuteronomy. He quotes one from the book of Luke. And he says, the scripture says. Well, why is that important? What did Paul just do? He takes two texts, one from the book of Moses. He takes one from the gospel. He says, the scripture says. Wait, did, did he just, why didn't he say the old and the new? Why didn't he differentiate them? It's the scripture. And if you know when Luke was written, it was about three to five years prior to this. So Luke's already written this gospel, and it's already been sent out and distributed, and within these first three to five years, it's already been acknowledged as this is the word of God. Christian, that should cause everything inside you just to be excited with joy, going, we know with confidence. We have the word of God. Within three to five years, everybody had known in the Christian world, when he says the scripture says, he's quoting Luke. The ink had just dried. It may have taken two years to get the parchment to them. This is the word of God. The book of Moses and the Gospels, they're all one. This is the word. Have confidence in the word of God. Know that what we have, we stand on firmly. That's why this is our sole guide for faith and practice. It's ours. It's real. It's true. So let's live it out. Let's make our decisions, how we run our church, why we do what we do. Let's base it on the word alone. Next, could God make us a duplicating, disciple-making church? Could God make our church a duplicating, disciple-making church? We've ordained deacons to ministry. Who's next? 
brother. Is it your time? Who's next? And what's the next person? What's the next question? Who's next? Who's next? Well, Pastor, at that state, everybody will be no. Not everyone meets the qualifications, and it's not your team A, team B. We need pitchers, and we need hitters. Some people are geared and gifted to be what the deacons were. Some people are geared and gifted to be the top. And if they are, and if they have the heart, and they meet the qualifications, let's go. Let's get her done. Lastly, Christian, we see Paul's charge to Timothy in the presence of God. How awesome would it be to stand in the presence of Christ? stand before the Lord in glory to see the, the holes in his hands and on his side and to hear his voice for the first time that gentle and lowly voice hear your name come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared our Savior say that the one that made the way the one who bore our guilt as we sang earlier the one who's heard our prayer a thousand times Jesus I'll never do it again and he did it here look at you eyeball to eyeball come you are blessed by my father come and see the kingdom prepared Bow for your prayer. If you do, we take often we take thirty seconds just to pray and ask the Lord to work in our heart. Christian, what would God have you do? What would He have you say, change, be? What would He have you give? Just take this time. If you're here and you don't know Christ, I encourage you, beg you, come to Him today. Confess your sin to Him. He's faithful and just to forgive you, cleanse you from all righteousness. Just take thirty seconds, quiet our heart. members that we need to bring before you and we'll let you go. Lord, we ask that you, our great Savior, would align up your people here at Lexington Baptist Church to your word and to your will. May what we do, what we say, how we operate, reflect your word. Lord, when we err and when we stray, Lord, help us get back on track. 